When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 88, Llewellyn's Legacy. So before we begin the actual podcast, I just want to take a moment to thank every one of you that is listening to this podcast, because without you, this podcast would not exist, and certainly without you, I would not be doing this and doing all this research and looking up all these things and learning quite a lot in the process. And the reason why I wanted to point this out, and as I said on Twitter... Uh, on Thursday, before this went live, um, we reached a few milestones, one of which is that we're now listed with Spotify. So if you have a Spotify account and you want to listen to this podcast, or if you're on a Spotify account and listening to this podcast, thank you very much. You can do that there. Uh, links are on our social media sites as well. We also hit 300 followers on uh, Facebook, which is amazing and wonderful. And thank you very much for all of you who do follow us on Facebook. I apologize. I don't publish a lot there. But I do try and put some things there, some things on Twitter, some things in the Patreon as often as I can. And uh, finally, uh, we're about to hit on probably by the end of this episode going live, we will hit 100,000 downloads for this podcast, which is fantastic, and I cannot express how much that means to me and how much you all mean to me. Thank you so much for your support and your continued listening, and let's get on with the podcast instead of me rambling. As we look back one more time at Llewellyn uh, the Great, let's talk about his legacy. Specifically, we're going to talk about the structures of government and how they were run, and how things effectively worked. Some of these will have Welsh names, and we'll mention them, but there's also parallel names which we'll be using as well. So try not to get bogged down. There's a lot of titles, names, people names that you're going to hear in the next little bit. So we're just trying to make sense of everything and, and kind of give descriptions of things. Don't get too bogged down. If you, you know, Certainly it can be a little complicated. Hopefully it's not. Hopefully this is entertaining and interesting, but here we go. While we know what we are talking about likely preceded Llewellyn's time, at least somewhat, the records that we do have allow us a greater peek into the rule of laws, the structure of government, and how they were enforced than at any previous time. As we know, most of Welsh history has very little documentation and there's very little to go on. So this period in the 13th century is a, is a great window into the, the mind's eye of that era. Uh, there will, of course, be similarities to the English of the period, which should be of no surprise, as, of course, the, any wise leader would copy things that are successful, remove things that just don't work. I would argue, in fact, that the effort to recognize David over Griffith, who was actually the eldest son, 
but legally a bastard in English law, shows that Llewellyn was already trying to achieve at least some of that anglicization of legal precedent and documents. Llewellyn was taught well by past experience, as his grandfather's death caused the overthrow of a number of uncles, the likely untimely death of his father. This also meant that he was also very focused on legacy and reversing the trend of Welsh inheritance. So the first instance of Welsh rule was to gather the most influential and important members of your court around you and decide who you trusted and who you needed in some special place or give special treatment to possibly isolate them or, in some cases, to treat them as a trusted advisor. In Llewellyn's case, his cousins, who were one time his allies, of course, fell into the category of being needing to be shunted aside. And even if they were important at first, they slowly became impediments to his ability and his ambitions. But for those not in the circle, it was critical to build relations with them. Troublingly for the Welsh, typically the ability of the leader rather than the heredity was most important. Most could claim at least, or at the very least, make up a claim to an ancient ancestor, be it Cunetha, Murfin, or Rodri. But because of the divine lineage and the divine right of rule rarely, if ever, existed, if you were a ruler who died, the likelihood of you passing it down to your son's decreased the farther away it got from your birth. The reality of it is you might be able to pass it to your son, but the likelihood of your grandson ruling was probably next to none. If you had too many siblings, you were then obligated to call them, or then chaos would follow, obviously. Or worse yet, if you were of the old Welsh mindset, then inheritance was a state of mind, and anyone could claim it on the sketchiest of bases. Remember, Mervyn was only related to Canatha by the line in maternal lineage, and that was supposed to discount his line from that option, except it didn't. So, if you were ruthless, merciless, and good at war, you were the king. If you failed at any of those, you were likely dead or exiled. The best kings and princes of Welsh independence were very good at being very, very bad men to cross. Huel might have been called the good, but he did commit a number of killings of his own family members to taint that label, and of course he was not without the realm of using and exercising his willingness to take on and destroy people he didn't appreciate, like, or want on certain thrones. So make no mistake, this is a man who was not necessarily good in reality, but he was a very good king. Much like the kings of England, the prince's traveled around in retinues visiting places all over their kingdom. This would then mean that various palaces were scattered about to meet the needs of this large army of people. Welsh rulers, like most medieval rulers of the time, had bodyguards, squires, various lords who were members of the court, who then had to be fed, they had to be provided places to sleep, and this was usually done at a high cost in the land which didn't even have its own original currency at this point. The Telu, the household guard, acted as the final defense for the prince or king. Much like the Praetorian guard of Roman times, they were there to protect the prince and keep him safe. The court was also the place where sentences, disputes, and other debates were held. The king's lord or prince of the land was the supreme court justice of the day, the final point of appeal, and this would even be true in some clerical cases. 
At times, the court would hear cases without the prince being present. But as historian David Stevenson noted, whilst the princes were absent from a commote, a small regional division, courts were certainly held in his name, and upon his arrival would probably be accumulations of cases which were beyond the competence of the commote court to determine. So in other words, probably the more difficult, the more awkward, the more particularly nasty decisions were made by the prince, not by the local official. By the time of Llewellyn, the palaces were once again stone fortifications, much like how the Romans had stone administration buildings. The fortifications, some of which survive to this day, at least in some form, were places for the prince to travel to and bring his horde. Uh, and we're going to start saying this, and unfortunately this is the case through all of this podcast, but excuse me if my pronunciation is abysmal, but I will do my best. Dalthulf Delan Castle and Krikith Castle are two examples of castles built during Llewellyn's the Great's reign. They were obviously influenced by the new systems that were growing in use in Europe during this period and represent Welsh buildings of the high middle be honest, these are bases of power. Uh, they were ones that were used as defenses, but like all castles, were actually a symbol of the power of the prince. I have the power here to exercise my dominion over this place. There were symbols that would be used by Edward later to enforce his will on the same land only in 15, 50 years from this point. The principal servant of the king and the head of his council was the disdain. Much like other positions, these in English service, the name was very old and it referred to positions that likely had no relevance to that position now. In the Old Welsh law, the disdain was in charge of the kitchen of the court and the person who handed out what is called supper money or basically paid for supper. Instead, the role grew into that of a position not dissimilar to a high councillor or a prime minister, to use modern terminology. They were there to follow the prince, to act in his name, but not without his support. He was the closest advisor and a key in the decision-making. In the best scenario, likely the person could also advise the prince most frankly. The disdain, at least by the 14th century, had reached the level of heredity right, something passed down amongst fathers to their sons, at least according to the old noted Welsh historian John Lloyd. Historian David Stevenson argues that there's little evidence of this before the 13th century, but there may be some logic to it afterwards, as Ednevel Feichan uh, held the position and then followed by his sons Gornuwe and Tudor in the latter half of the century. Ednefe's nephew would also be disdained, but this time to David Ap Griffith, but as Stevenson suggests, this may be more about the fact that David was down to few choices by that point rather than actually it being something still hereditarily passed. So having this second suggestion and position of hereditary power sounds kind of like a terrible idea. It would make sense to have someone you trust in this position as well as someone who's high enough in the nobility to be able to call you on your crap, excuse the terminology, 
But it's also important to have someone of merit who could run things in case the heir is a bit of a dud. So having the second position of power being hereditary seems a tiny bit silly, but that would be the case with many advisors across the medieval era. This is not just a Welsh problem. The English kings would often be advised by uncles and sons of advisors of fathers. It was a hit and miss for them as well. So it's not an original problem or even a new problem for anyone. But it was something of a flaw and maybe something of a blind spot for them. Originally, this role of second in command would have been held instead by the Pentalu, or the war leader, the war leader for the Welsh kings would have been an important position because of how often they were needed and how rare peace must have been in the post-Norman period. But as diplomacy began to supplant warriors in importance, the disdain took hold as the premier office in the power dynamic, and Nepentalu was relegated to more of a supreme generalship with less influence on the overall direction of the kingdom. The other issue with the Pentalu was that traditionally it went to family members, which was a ready-made rival, something that no king or prince wants too close to the power structure. It may have been at one time that Pentalu, at least in the early Dark Ages, was even a supreme position to the king or the prince, which would explain how there were supreme military overlords over various kingdoms. Uh, the old Arthur myths, for example, point to this idea of him being a supreme commander rather than necessarily, or high king was another terminology that was used in, in those dark age periods. But of course, that's conjecture. I'm just filling in blanks where it kind of makes sense. Uh, the telu or the army was usually well equipped. In this era, it was a more professional army. It wasn't made up of citizen soldiers as such, but rather men who were given armor, weapons, siege engines, they would have battering rams and the like. So they were basically the the constant army that was kept around and used when needed, rather than local militias who were called for when they could be used and could be brought forward in case of emergency or in case of a battle. So they were a bit different in that respect. And this was very common across all the medieval period in this era. Another key member of the court was called the Chamberlain. Originally, this position was to care for the king's chamber, thus the name, uh, where a number of precious items were usually stored. Because of that, you might understand how this might be morphing into being in charge of finances in general, because if you're in charge of the precious items, that would make sense. You'd also be in charge of the king's money. The Chamberlain, in effect, became the finance minister to protect the king's purse. This would also be a sensible outgrowth in the changing realities of tax collection and general administration as they grew. Someone needed to be willing to do the accounting and be able to cover finances in a reality where the kings and princes were built more about being strong, charismatic leaders and men of war over being bean counters. And in fact, through much of the medieval literature, the tax collector, the chamberlain, were disrespected and abused as plotting men of no honor. Kings and princes who were seen as too miserly were also not well-loved. But if you can pass on to someone else to be the target of ire, then it makes some sense. It keeps you out of the way of being the target of the hatred of your people if you can say, well, it's really this guy that's doing all of that nasty tax collection, so focus your energies on him or on his several different people that are under him, especially if you're not big on math or maths, depending on where you live, yourself. Uh, 
But even by the 13th century, the Chamberlain in Welsh called the Guast Estefel had been overtaken by the more formal department to handle finances, the medieval treasurer. The treasurer or vice chamberlain uh, became much more important as we go through this process. And in a way, it becomes a, a point of contention because there's not a lot of evidence for the vice chamberlain. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But I think there is some enough evidence to say that this position probably existed because as the kingdom gets more complex, you need more and more administrative people to help run it. Um, in fact, it was Richard of Mould, for example, who served as vice chamberlain for Llewellyn Ap Griffith, who dealt with the paying off of treaties that his lord signed in the 1260s. Dr. Stevenson, our historian of note, contends that these may not necessarily be official positions in government, but rather just points in time when people were needed to take on special projects rather than active members of the bureaucracy of Gwyneth. I would tend to think that it's probably more likely that they were actual positions and that they were a part of a bureaucracy, if for no other reason than it's modeling itself after the English crown at this time, and they were doing a lot of this, and a lot of other positions exist. Why wouldn't these be more normalized? But it all goes to say this is all about the paucity of evidence rather than actual fact because we just don't have enough to say, oh yeah, that definitely was the case with this particular title. They did this or they did that. We can only say it, question because they're not mentioned a lot. Where is that an evidence that they didn't exist that often or is it evidence that they just weren't mentioned a lot? We don't know. In religious matters, the household priest or offered tello played a critical role in helping their princes and kings in spiritual matters and in negotiations with clergy across the kingdom uh, and obviously making things work within the kingdom. Uh, obviously, this is where we get the term cleric and clerical and all of those kind of things in English from is the fact that they generally handled those kind of roles. And the reason why it was such a critical role and why the clergy of all people were the ones that held it is because in a world where literacy was not yet something prized, they would be some of the few who could write and read documents as they had done for hundreds of years. And it was the, definitely the case even in the high middle era when literacy starts to become more of a general thing that people in nobility want to have. And in a century prior to where the University of Paris and Oxford were established. But this is not general. In Wales, as one could note, the first degree-granting degree institution would not actually be founded until 1822. So there were a few places outside of the clergy where one would be able to gain the literacy, to be able to write documents, to be able to create charters. And so, of course, most of this would fall to the clergy. And it would make that makes sense it would it would obviously be a role that they would be adept to doing so having them in clerical positions and administrating all of this paperwork makes perfect sense and the main key figure in that was someone called the chancellor or the king Halar. some historians contend exist in the late courts of gwyneth but and were the ones really in charge of paperwork treaties charters and pronouncements written down from the mouth of the prince they would also serve the role as chief diplomat for the prince, as there was evidence that the Archbishop of Asfeth, 
served in this role. He was apparently sent to negotiate with Henry III, for example, by Prince David ap Llewellyn. Along, again, showing that clerical link and showing that they were important not just for what they could write and read, but also the fact that they could, from their experience, from their training, negotiate with great lords and kings of other places. Likely they had roles in that simply because they were some of the few very educated people in the area and also because generally like an archbishop is not going to be a young man he's going to be in all likelihood a fairly elderly man who's been around the block knows how to speak to people in power and speak well with them so you can understand why they would be trusted and considered important and of course their positions as clerics would give them a, some semblance of protection from say, being snapped up and arrested by a king who's ticked off with a prince. It doesn't give them total protection, but it does give them some. Along with these court officers, there was a number of men who ran cantrips, which helped to maintain the flow of goods, trade, taxes, and supplied the military with weapons, warriors, and wheat. Much like all nations, Gwyneth ran on the back of its officials, be they noble, common, or peasant class. Without them, Gwyneth could not have continued and allowed its princes the luxury of dreaming big, while, of course, the dark clouds on the horizon loom. Thank you all so much for listening. Next week, we're going to get into David ap Llewellyn as we move away from the great into his son. And, of course, talk about his time as Prince of Wales. Uh, and as we leave Llewellyn the Great, it is one of those things where you, you realize you're leaving behind somebody important, somebody significant. And someone who has left a legacy on Wales that, that is indescribable in a lot of ways. And I think we are lucky to be able to talk about someone like that and about his wife, Joan, and about how he thought and worked and tried to create a kingdom for his son that would last beyond his immediate heirs and continue forward after that. And I think he did the best he could in that circumstance, in that situation. And I think it shows in the fact that he set up positions like these that we talked about, which normalized the kingdom and made it much more bureaucratic. You have to remember that before the arrival of the Normans, we don't know what bureaucracy existed in Wales. But what we do know is that the bureaucracy that had existed under the Roman period disappeared with the Romans. And the semblance that came back certainly was a pale shadow of that. You know, the, the strong men that probably took hold in power spots across Wales and across Britain in general were not built to have an administrative power source, did not have a massive level of coinage and food and all these things to build and hold, maintain mass armies. And it isn't until you get to the medieval period in proper that that starts to become important and you have this change from citizens and servants to actual professionals who are brought into those roles. So it's important that this that we talk about this because of course you have to understand that for every king and prince and and lord there's all of these people underneath who are doing a lot of the work who don't get talked about whose names aren't known to us for the most part but who contribute massively to the effective running of the kingdom and keeping the kingdom afloat when 
sometimes you have princes, kings, and lords that aren't the greatest who don't have an interest in raising the kingdom and keeping it going, who really only enjoyed the war they fought and kind of find peace annoying. All of those people need to, in a way, be protected, and I think that's an important thing to note with this. So with all that in mind, as I said, next week we're going to get into or not next week, but uh, next time we'll get into David and his legacy. And then, of course, we'll then move on to Llewellyn Ap Griffith and we'll be moving ever closer to the end of independence. And that will probably happen around the end of the year. So look forward to that. And then we get into the aftermath. Uh, until next time, everyone, thank you so much for listening. Thank you if you're new and thank you if you've been listening since the very first episode right from day one i appreciate you all and if you have any comments questions or concerns you can reach me on twitter at welsh history pod at uh, welsh history podcast on facebook and you can also reach me at welsh history podcast at gmail.com and throw a question throw a comment throw a concern at me and i will make sure i try and at least answer it and if you are a patreon member no i haven't forgotten i will be getting an episode out very shortly it's just i've been very busy this week uh and hopefully we'll be able to put something out for you guys soon enough until next time everyone take care thank you have a great day bye this has been a distractions media production and for everything we do check out distractionsmedia.com history is the greatest adventure story but does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.